This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Al Williamson. Al is known as the father of the extended stay rentals. As a landlord scientist, Al has figured out the best ways to increase the net operating income for rentals. He'll go over the basics of why extended stay rentals are far better than the typical Airbnb short-term rentals, and will even tell you how you can get started with the strategy today. Enjoy! Go ahead and introduce yourself and let everyone know who you are and how you got into real estate investing. Okay. Hey, my name is Al Williamson. I'm better known as the world's first landlord scientist. I had to come up with a a name for myself after I left corporate America, give myself some purpose. So that's my mission is to boldly go where no landlord has gone before. So I'm out there exploring different technologies, checking out how artificial intelligence is going to affect real estate, seeing how 5G is going to affect us, see if we can monetize some of those towers and not miss the train on that like like so many people did for um, cell towers. They missed a lot of um, land leasing. So I'm going to Ain't going to miss this next train, man. I'm going to be right on it. So how I got in, I went to a church picnic, and I was getting ready to get married in 96. And an older gentleman pulled me aside and said, you know, you should think about getting a duplex instead of buying a house. You guys should move in a duplex and then rent out the other half. This is back in 96. Um, It felt like it was pre-internet. It was just email stuff back then. So I went to the library, and I read from one side of the of the library shelf to the other, all real estate. Just kept reading, 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 and then um, I started reading the same thing over and over again. And I'm like, I I know this now. I know these numbers. They feel good to me as a civil engineer. I know algebra, and it felt good. I knew I could see how those those variables allowed me to scale up. So we jumped in. And we bought a three unit building, and my new bride. I pushed her into one of the smallest units. So that's love, right? That's right. She's squeezed her into yeah, into the into one of the smallest units of a three um, unit um, Victorian in in downtown Sacramento, and it's a midtown Sacramento that was going through a revitalization, and we didn't know what that was. We just knew that we wanted a, a threeplex and kind of house hack before the word house hack was out, and that property within five years it quadrupled. Damn. And, and it's it just, we just got lucky, you know, it, the neighborhood got better and um, it was upswing in the, in the market and quadrupled. And we, we said, wow, let's do this again. <laughs> so, you know, we did a 1031 exchange and some things like that, tax-free exchange. And then we, we bought into a um, inner city neighborhood. We bought an eight unit building this time. And we said, well, let's fix up the neighborhood because that's what happened. If you got the neighborhood together, if you improve the neighborhood, then you can raise your rents and then you can force the appreciation of your, your rents. And then you can force the appreciation of the value of your property and bam, you'd be instant millionaire. So uh, that was process. I figured out how to do that. It was basically applying leadership to the inner city. The, the most profitable things you can do is change a, a D neighborhood into a C or a C neighborhood into a B. That's where you get your most value with the same exact same products, exact same um, 
no granite countertops or anything. No renovations, no nothing. Just no windows. Just clean up the neighborhood. Clean up that block is the so most what were you doing to do profitable that? things. Well, you pick up litter, first of all. So you give the visual clues and you organize people. You get them on a mailing list so that so that they feel comfortable about reporting petty crime. And so then you became you, like the night, the what's called crime neighborhood watch. Guy. watch. Yeah, yep. neighborhood watch guy. I was the guy. <laughs> I was the guy, and it worked for a, a number of different ways. One thing, I didn't live in the neighborhood, and I wasn't afraid of any type of repercussions. And also, I was one of the larger property owners with this eight-unit building, and everyone else was uh, single-family homes around me. Mm-hmm. So it just lacked leadership. You add leadership to nearly anything, and you improve the value of it. So that's that's what it happened. And um, and as we we're going to talk about today, I was it got nicer, so I was able to do short-term rentals. And short-term rentals left led to spewing out so much money I could walk away from my corporate job. And how long ago was that that you actually walked away? That was t- uh, two years, about two and a half years. When I turned fifty, I was able to do it. Congratulations! Thank you. So that's what you're known for nowadays. Do you want yeah. to talk more about that? And what is your current strategy? Well, that's, well, that's one thing. I hope I hope people don't think of me as a landlord of science, but I did discover extended stay version of the Airbnb because I was doing landlord science, I was testing things. I was testing different operating modes of the of a two-bit, one-bath apartment uh, unit that I happened to own. So what, what I did, when Airbnb came out with something called business travel ready, that category, where they said, we'll give you this badge if you're not living in the unit, and we'll market that to business travelers. That was back in 2015. And the, the the bottom half of 2015, they came out with business travel ready. And I said, well, that's right up my alley because I love being a guest and having people bring me cookies and carry my luggage. But that wasn't in my plans for as a host. I, I wasn't interested in that. I didn't want to be there to meet people and whatnot. So I started experimenting with this two-bit one bath and I discovered that I could make the same amount doing a, on a net income basis without all, without when you boil down your numbers and, and you include your, how much time you pay yourself for your time, which so many people are not doing, <laughs> paying yourself for your time. You, I ended up with the same net income for, for a one month stay as I did for doing three stays that month. Mm-hmm. And that, that turned my lights on like, hey, these longer stays are more efficient on a net income basis, and it has so many other collateral benefits like city ordinances and city taxes and insurance and just wear and tear on, on me and my family. And it, I feel it's more sustainable for sure. So that turned from one month into three six-month days optimizing for those. And I found that the longer the stay, the more net income I made per month. So imagine that I said, instead of doing four or five night stays per month, I could just do on a monthly basis. My net income was bigger, larger if I was doing three to six month stays. So how do you do that? Do you just set like a minimum stay length for your properties? You do. And also, here's the big secret. You leave Airbnb. Oh. Airbnb becomes your, your backup strategy, not your primary strategy. You build relationships directly with folks. That's it, because those are how you get into the the more of the medical, the insurance, and the corporate housing 
areas where you're not have a middleman, you have relationships that are built over time. There's not, uh, it's not an efficient thing. It's, you know, it's inefficient. You got to spend time with people. You got to talk. You can't hide behind your computer. Anyone can hide behind their computer and get an Airbnb listing. And I love that because it's well thought out. And I love that. I, I encourage people to do that while I'm going out and I'm talking to HR managers and I'm locking up, locking up deals. So for example, yeah, there's like the big talk about what's called uh, traveling nurses. Yeah. They're a big one. So do you go to like, I don't know, like a hospital? Or how do you uh, even start if you want traveling nurses? So if you're going to start on travel nurses, they're really an agency. A hospital says, hey, we need someone in a couple of weeks because we're seeing an influx in population and, and we have a nurse to patient ratio we have to stick to. So they said, we need to hire some people right away. We need them right away. So they go and tell agencies, nursing agencies that are all over. They may be in Chicago. They may be on the East Coast. But they, they tell everybody that we need um, a certain person, maybe someone for the ER. And those nursing agencies that are nowhere near you, <laughs> they're out somewhere, go and recruit um, nurses from, say, Mississippi or Alabama or Florida, who um, those states don't treat their nurses well. So they go recruit on your behalf, on the behalf of the hospital. And those nurses have a choice. They have a choice between having this nursing agency find housing for them or they find housing directly. So it's very inefficient. You have to do a lot of Facebooking um, to get to the nurses or you just get um, together with these different agencies and get on their personal website list. And that's what you do. Ideally, you do both. Got it. So basically you say this hospital, let's say in Oakland, is big and needs a lot of nurses in the near future. And your property is near that hospital. So you look at what agencies the hospital go to, and then you just get in touch with their HR, the HR manager of the agency. Yeah, you definitely can do that, but that's going to be, you're really shotgunning then. Getting involved in the Facebook groups is even better. What Facebook group exactly? One of them is Gypsy Nurse on Facebook. You can get involved in there. And then you start striking up conversations and doing peer-to-peer type of type of discussions. It's very inefficient. And that's how you build your reputation over time. And you, um, one nurse will tell, will leave, start leaving on Facebook, how, how great the experience was. And, and then other people find that and just go straight to you. Got it. So basically you're kind of going into this organization of the people you kind of want as your tenant base and you're providing value somehow in these Facebook groups. Yep. Yeah. Okay. You make it easy. Now, Everyone has their own Facebook groups. There's so many Facebook groups. I, I've been sharing about travel nurses because um, Sacramento is one of the big destinations for travel nurses. But that's just a, the tiny fraction of this world of people, traveling professionals. Mm-hmm. Everyone who has a laptop and access to a cloud can, is a traveling professional. And there's so many extended stays. As When I was overseeing bridge construction, I was gone for three months, just six months at a time. I was a traveling professional. My my budget was larger than travel nurses. I always feel bad that I share about traveling healthcare professionals and people shrink their world to that. And that's just the top of the iceberg. I, I use traveling nurses because people have heard of it before, but I'm sure you can talk about like anything. Like you said, there's business professionals, salespeople. Yeah, I can keep going on and on about, you know, lobbyists come to town. Exactly. So- 
let's just use the example of traveling nurses. Okay. I don't know anything about traveling nurses, but I want to have them as my ideal client. And I go talk to them on Facebook. I join their Facebook groups. Yep. But I don't know anything about their profession. What kind of value do you usually talk about to kind of get in the group? Well, you think about who, who think about your, your ideal client and you think about what they desire from the area. Okay. And then you think, about, okay, they're looking for to make some type of transition or transformation, or they want a certain experience for a certain budget that they have restrictions for. As an individual, you can do that much better than a corporation can. You can give them a, a better experience. For example, tell me what city you live in. I live in Milpitas. Milpitas? Okay. I know where it is. Now, if I had one day to live in Milpitas, I had this day in Milpitas, could you design the day for me of what the best things to do there? Sure. Yeah. And you would direct me right there, right? That's right. See, that's, that type of insight is what a corporation cannot do, and that's our advantage. We can, we can move away. We can set up housing away from freeway intersections. Okay. Got it. And in the group, you can be like, hey, if you're ever in their city, here's some cool things to check out and maybe run the top go. 10 yep. list. Oh, got it. You become the person. Yep. You become the person. Yep. And then whenever like someone who's in the group happens to be an HR representative of the agency, they can be, oh yeah, this guy knows a lot about the city. Maybe he knows something about where my people can stay when they go travel to that area. Well, oftentimes people will jump into a Facebook group and they'll do a search for the city to see kind of what's out there. And then you have all these breadcrumbs you've left and all this great talk about you and, and you show up so many times in these, uh, in the filter searches. So th this is, this is, it could be for any industry. Like I'm often courting HR managers. You know, I go hang out at their meetups. I become visible. It's inefficient. There's a high barrier to entry to become known in the industry. Whereas it's very easy to jump up on Airbnb and, and you can make a good living just staying on Airbnb if, if you choose to. Until, until times change. <laughs> That's right. And times are changing. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're putting in a lot of the hard work right now. So it's going to be, obviously it pays off. Obviously it pays off. Thank you very much for the strategy. I'd never even thought about this, but it makes so much sense. Yep. It's just organic. It takes time to get to know people and all internet business is based on trust. You know, Airbnb is a, a third party that allows us to trust each other so we can do a financial exchange. But it's all, all financial exchanges is based on trust. And that takes time. And they trust people they know. They know and like. That's right. So talking about your strategy, do you need a lot of capital to do it? No, you, you don't. You don't. And this is what's the amazing eye-opener thing for me. Because I always thought I could never work with a private lender. I could never work with a financial investor. I didn't bring much to the table. Remember, I started before the internet was around with investing. The usual course is you save your money, you buy your, a rental, you pay off the rental, then you have some capital so that you can start uh, loaning money and get into private notes and, and understand that whole market of arbitrage. But now, with that there's the internet, you don't need to go that whole route anymore. You can get information so know-how, especially marketing know-how. If we're talking specifically about the short-term rental industry, in my case, you know, the industry has all kinds of segments between luxury, 
affordability and budget. There's those segments in it. And then there's segments of short, short, short stays, one, two night stays, weekend stays, and extended stays, just like there's regular um, hotels and there's extended stay hotels. So we got those three categories, luxury, mid-level, budget, and short, short stays and extended stays. So I stay in extended stay and I like the mid-range. Not to confuse things, but each of those pockets has its own universe and how you operate and what you think. If you are in the extended stay, which hardly anybody is, and I love that, and you know how to market and keep the place filled, which is the most important thing because it's inefficient, then you can set up a unit and get it going, get someone in there. This is specifically arbitrage, unless you're doing a conversion. If you're arbitraging, which is you're, you're renting someone's place and you're make, adding value to it by adding furnishings, and then you're uh, marketing it to corporate people, then you can break even in six months and then start making profit. So what I'm saying is you can go borrow money from somebody. So you don't need your own money now. You can go borrow money from someone, let's say at 12%, and pay them all back in six months. And then you start making profit. But you have to have the know-how first. And once you have the know-how and you have confidence that you can't keep the place filled and you understand that this is a growing market, more and more companies are building extended stays, hotels with kitchenettes in them, than, they, than there are these regular hotels. Why? Because more travel is going lasting for one month and longer. Do you know how much it takes usually to you know, furnish a unit and get it ready for this extended stay strategy? Now, Malpitas, of course, everything in the Bay Area is, is different number than the than the rest of the United States. Do you have people doing Bay Area? Oh yeah, lots. So let's give an example of a Bay Area property. Okay. So first month's rent and security deposit, that could be that could be five grand just there, depending on some areas. We're talking about a rental arbitrage, okay? This is the rent and the deposit. This is the rent the and rent yeah. for the master lease. Right. Master lease. Okay. So just first month's rent so you got that money needs to be paid out by somebody. And then furnishings, you can get all the furnishings for uh, $4,000 if, and you can do it for less. You know, everyone went to college. You know how to hustle together if you if you chose to. Or you can buy everything new. Let's just talk about a one-bedroom place. You should be able to get it all done for 4000 and just be resourceful. So there we go. We got first month's rent and the security deposit if that's, say, 4000 5000 alone. And then 4000 in furnishings, that's $9,000. Yeah, you should be able to get it all up and going. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't have to be your 9000 You just need to have the know-how and the hustle. The money's easy. Anyone that sees a business plan where you break even that quickly will loan you money. And can you talk about how do you know that you'll make the money back in six months? Like, where do you do your comparative market analysis? It's, you're not using Airbnb to determine your nightly rate. Let's talk about Extended Stay America because they're the leader in this in this market, and they all position themselves in the mid-range affordability. They have an analyst who say, okay, we're looking to see if this location can support an average stay, length of stay of 18 days. So they do all their marketing research, and they spend uh, all kinds of financial models, things like that, computer models. And they're paid a couple hundred thousand dollars to do the marketing research because they know what they're doing. And then they say, okay, put an extended stay America here. And the company says, okay, we'll go spend $10 million because we know you're correct. And we'll put 200 rooms, sometimes 300 rooms right there. 
So here's the eye opener. If there's, if there's an extended stay there, that's all the marketing research you need to do. If there's a car in the parking lot, that's all the marketing research you need to do. What kind of radius are we talking about? Of course, extended stay has to stay by a off-ramp. You can't go in the middle of a great neighborhood because of the zoning, right? So the question of the, the radius is kind of misleading. If, if there's an extended stay nearby, um, you can go- like Two miles away. Yeah, that's fine. It doesn't matter. You want to be in the great spot where they can't go. They can't go in the middle of a cool spot by the cool coffee shop. And you just charge maybe like 75% of what they charge for a nightly rate? That, that's right. Okay. You can beat them all day long. Yep. I mean, is that right? Is that what you usually do? 75% or 60 or? I always compare it to the government service administration, what their rates are. Because extended stay, all these extended stays and all hotels are basing themselves off a percentage of what the government rate is in the area. So you need to say, what's the government rate for my zip code? You can find that at gsa.gov. You can look up the per diem for housing per night. Okay. And then you say, well, what is the extended stay? What are the hotels? What percentage of the GSA are, are these hotels charging? Mm. And then you can say it could be, it could be um, 90% or 75% or um, sometimes 55%. And each one of those things t tells you specifically when it comes to extended stay, if it's 75%, that's what they're charging. They're saying they bet people are going to stay three months that they want to be affordable for people staying up to three months. I'm hitting with too many details. If it's 55% of GSA, then they're saying, ah, oh, people are staying six months. That's what it's telling you. So if, if they're charging 75% GSA, you don't want to over furnish your place so that uh, rate doesn't work for you. You don't want to go and put super luxury stuff in there because you're outpricing the market. You need to stay inside that band um, and actually a little bit below it to even be in the game. And if you don't even know about GSA, then you're competing against people who are on Airbnb, which is, I, and I, now let me say this, I, I love Airbnb. It gives, it changes people's lives is how I started. It's the, one of some of the best artificial intelligence on the planet as far as I'm concerned, but it's the minimum wage job in the corporate housing world. It's the lowest level and it's the easiest to get into. And I think it's a great, great backup resource. But just like, and I don't want to say this in a, in a negative way, but if you start at a minimum wage job, you, you don't want to stay there. You want to work your way up. You start there and you don't stay. You start with Airbnb and then you start building your own relationships so that you're not, you don't, you don't want to become Airbnb's asset. You want them to be your marketing, one of your marketing tools. You don't want to say, I'm an Airbnb super host. That's my identity. That's where I stay. I'm going to do everything they say to do so I can maintain my, or else they'll take it away from me. That becomes, you become their asset. Mm -hmm. And you can make good money doing that. I'm happy they do, because, and they can be very successful doing that. And, and they'll stay out of my hair and they'll stay away from my competition and I can just keep making up more net income than they do. And I can run my short-term rental business while they're being great hosts. There's a complete difference. There's a, there's a big difference between a, being a, a world-class host and a good short-term rental business owner. Perfect. By the way, I want to thank you very much for actually 
going into more detail and talking about the whole GSA thing, because like I mentioned before, people listen to this podcast specifically because they want to hear something a little bit different that they don't hear on the other podcasts. So even going into this detail where you might lose people, at least you can come back in the future, listen to it again and be like, oh, I get it now. Just like me. I, I never heard about this stuff. I'm actually on per diem myself. So I totally understand where the incentive is. I was wondering if we can go into more detail on these numbers, if you don't mind. Yeah. Okay. Now let's talk about, let's talk about your per diem. Yeah. Are you, there's two types of per diems. There's one that you can actually pocket any savings that you generate. Mm-hmm. And there's some that you cannot. Yeah, right. Pocket. You have to share. You have to show your invoice. So I could pocket mine. So I'm obviously trying to live okay. as cheap and cheap as possible. There, there you go. There you go. So that's complete. Now, if you could not, if you just had to show your your invoice and you gave that to the county department and they paid it, you would have a completely different mindset. Then I would stay at the hotels all night. Yeah, there you go. So there's there's three different bins of motivation of people staying. There's people who, who are looking for savings, people who are looking for value and people who are looking for profit. Now, the people looking for savings, they're paying out of their own pocket. And those guys have those guys have the white glove. They'll nitpick you. They're the t- typical tourist are paying out of pocket. And then there are people who are looking for value because they can't pocket the difference. They, they, they're looking for perks, and they're looking to get the most they can for the allowance that they're given, business travelers. So those are the ones you want to kick off some Starbucks gift cards to and you want to add some some different perks and then you can get them all day long. And then there are people that are looking to profit, the pocket, the tax-free per diem. They're looking for you to come in lower and if you can make it a win-win split for them so that they they don't want the perks, they want the, they want the cash. Right. You don't want the Starbucks gift card, you want, <laughs> you want your cash. Those travel nurses are in that category. They got student loans that they're trying to accelerate the payoff on. Everyone knows what their per diem is, but they don't want to spend it all. Mm-hmm. So you have to you have to furnish a place with all this in mind. Like I used to house fourth year medical students, and as they're doing their rotations, they wanted a comfortable bed and fast Wi Fi, and that's it, and a shower. If you go put luxury stuff in there, you outprice them and you know, you're going to lose the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Same place. You're, you're just going to stay empty. Who do, you usually tr- uh, who do you usually go for though? The value people or the profit people? The value people is the holy grail because you can get the full amount and they just, and they have a different attitude. Yeah. Don't care. Yeah. It's like your parents taking you on vacation. Yeah. You can relax and you're, and you're just like, okay, whatever. Because you don't feel it. Once once you start getting involved or and you have something you don't have anything at stake when, you know, there's no self interest besides perks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's go back to the whole GSA. So you said that when the percentage of GSA is higher, they expect a shorter term. Yeah. So it used to be and it's a new tax law in effect, but still companies still follow this this model of if it's less than ninety days. Or, or sometimes even over a month's stay, you can expect your allowance is going to be 75% of the GSA per diem for housing. If you're staying less than 30 days, you'll get 100% of the GSA. Got it. Okay. And if, there, if you're going to be on a six-month tour of duty, TDY, then they're saying, hey, you should be able to find a place. You should be able to do that with 55% of the GSA allowance. 
So they'll pay, they'll pay you less, basically. Right. Because you should be able to figure that out. And just like if you're staying a year, you should be able to, to get a long-term lease and, and work out some efficiencies. Got it. Okay. So GSA is basically like a standard for this area of how much it costs to live and companies pay based on that GSA. Right. That's, and it's set by the government. So if you have a federal contract or a state contract, they're going to be benchmarking the GSA. That's what the Government Service Administration does is they set those standards for as many zip codes as they can. Okay, got it. So they set that at, let's say, 75%. Then what you do to undercut them, do you do 75% of that 75% too? I'm going to say it a little cleaner for you. Okay. You, you find out what your extended stay is charging because I'm, I'm only focusing on extended stays. That's that's my universe. I don't. My universe is not the tourist. Uh, less than thirty days. That's not my universe. Okay, they have their own thing. Uh, so I'm only talking to you about my my neighborhood of make believe. In 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 my world, just simply find out what what your local extended stay is charging, and then undercut them. Real real simple. The GSA just helps you know what game they're playing based on what those MBAs have determined is viable. Right. And you want to work your way up towards the same amount as them. As your reviews, you get more reviews and better relationships. So you just start undercutting by 20%. That's a probably good rule of thumb to start with. Yeah, you start with there because so, you want to keep, you want your place filled. This is real key. You want to benchmark your local extended stay hotel and not benchmark other Airbnb hosts. Right, yep. That's one of the key differences. And again, as I'm saying this, I got to tell you, you know, Airbnb is a phenomenon, changed everything, but they're one of my tools. I own them. They do not own me. So since you don't use like Airbnb as a platform to do it, you kind of do it directly? Oh, I do. Okay. I do. Well, I do. They, I use them as a, a safety net. I guess my point is, where does the review go when someone books with you? Because you probably met them through Facebook or something like you were saying earlier. Right. You can send them to Yelp. That works. That keeps it as a third-party recognizable one. You can just weave that into your ads or weave that into your Facebook communications. That's that's an easy one to do. And what is your like ideal property that you're looking for? Let me back you up because that's kind of a landlord question. Well, I guess to arbitrage with. Well, let's talk about both ways. Sure. If you own the property and you're converting that into a short-term rental, then you don't want to buy anything that doesn't cash flow under regular classic landlord places, things. Mm-hmm. The, the ideal property is one that cash flows <laughs> as a traditional landlord. That's the answer to that one um, in both cases. It's got a cash flow as a regular. Now, if you're arbit- now if you're arbitraging, what you want to do is you start with what your ideal guest or client can afford. What can they? How much can they pay? Let's say they can pay, like in uh, some places like Redwood City, they can pay five grand per month. Okay. And then you say, well, I want to make a $700, $800 profit per month. So you subtract that amount. And then you say, well, my expenses are going to be three, $400, let's say. So you subtract that amount. Okay. So uh, let's, say, let's say we're at three grand now because I can't do my math. Let's say we're at three grand. You take that number and you throw that into your maximum value of Craigslist. And then you see what's available. Now, whatever's available is your ideal property. Mm-hmm. Because of what? Because it helps you get your margin. So it could be any dwelling that fits that price category. 
is if your arbitraging is in your in that case an ideal property. I see. So you just look at the number, right? You look Not at necessarily you, the you, anything that gives you the margin. Okay. If you own it, it's got to give. It's got a cash flow as a as a traditional landlord. That's your ideal property. If you're doing arbitrage, it's got to give you the margin that you're looking for. If we're talking about people who are on per diem, especially people who are on the value, then you probably wouldn't do it with a four bed, two bath, right? So the cash flow equation is your income minus your expenses is your cash flow, right? Sure. It there's nothing in that that says it has to be a three bid, one bid, two bid. It says expenses. All right. So it's income minus your expenses, whether you own the place or you're renting the place or it's a lease option or it's a handshake deal. What, however you control the, the, the dwelling is your income minus your expenses is your cash flow. It has nothing to do with how, how big the place is. It's, it's how much it costs and how much can your ideal person pay. Those are the questions. And then do you try to put two people into one dwelling or is it just like one person per address? Well, there's, there's all kinds of different strategies. First of all, you found a place that gives you margin, the margin you want. Now, let's say that it's a two-bit, two-bath. Then you're going to want to try to market it to two business travelers who, would, who their alternative is to get their own individual hotel rooms or to save some per diem and, and live together. They have to be people that come to you as a pair. I think matching up strangers in a place that you're not living at, that don't know each other, is a lawsuit waiting to happen. I think it's the most risky thing that you could possibly do. And the worst thing you can do for your family is to do that out of greed and, and, and set yourself up for, because one person simply looking at another person sideways puts you in court push you in liability. I guess my question was more like, when you're underwriting the deal, do you kind of assume you only have one person? Because if you rent out the four bedroom home, the expense is going to be very high. And it could work if you had four people living in it. But based on what you're saying, that may not necessarily always be the case. Here we go. We're going to go into the details. Okay. Perfect. Let, let's talk about risk. It's made up of potential financial loss and unknowns. If you think of, they have two axes, right? So the more a place costs, the more potential loss, financial loss you have. So you're just, you're just asking for it. And if you're brand new, you have all these unknowns because you don't have any... No systems in place. Yeah, no idea, no experience. Yeah, you haven't got any... You don't have a track record. So why would, why would someone start with a four-bit... So small. You have to reduce your potential loss and you got to give yourself time to figure out your unknowns. And as you, got, as you have less unknowns, Say you have small unknowns and a big uh, potential loss, well, you still manage your risk. Or if you're just starting off and you have a low potential loss because you're doing a studio or a one bedroom and a lot of unknowns, then you still have managed your risk. So start small and, and, and stick in the game. I always say it, it takes time to build a reputation. It just does. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so if you, start, if you start small and manage your potential loss and, and start to build some relationships so that you can take on things. Let me tell you my story. So I started with a one bit, one bath. And then I learned that folks from the Bay Area, baby boomers, were selling their places and moving to the foothills. And they liked, they needed a place in Sacramento. After they sell for their millions, they need a place for their dog in a yard 
and three bit to BAF. So I started with the one bit one BAF, and then I discovered by being in the game long enough that what was happening and what kind of request I was getting, it took time for people to start telling me, hey, you know what I really need is this. I really need a three bit to BAF. Then I go get that and I found it as a larger margin. So my most profitable things is not travel nurses, it's, it's temp housing. But how did I discover that? Because I got started with something small. Every area has its own golden goose and its own sweet spot. It reveals itself over time. If we were in Kentucky and there's people traveling with horses, then a ranch, because they're professional business travelers, people traveling with horses, because they're horse racers. They travel with grandma and their children extend and their wives and everything. So that a ranch in Kentucky that can that has a, a place for horses is the best thing there. But how do you know that? It's because you get involved and you you start small and you see what's out there and where you are. Every location has its own sweet spot. So this is a great transition to my next question. Imagine you had to start all over again. No money, no network, no resources. What do you do? Now, this is pre-internet age or post-internet? Like right now. If something happened, you lost everything, you're starting all over. Right now, I've learned that employees get degrees, entrepreneurs and employers go get coaches. So I would get a coach. I would pay for a real coach and and not a uh, form because that's what I would do. And then I would leverage my relationship with them to go raise private money. Right now in, in a market that doesn't make sense to buy because the numbers don't pencil out and we're getting ready for a correction sometime, that's the next thing coming is a correction, right? I would start arbitraging. I wouldn't want to buy a property at the top of the market, okay? So I would control a property and make cash flow and leverage. That's what I would do right now because I don't need a penny of my own money to do all this. So I'm going to break this down real quick. Just what you said. Basically, you start with nothing. So you would probably go network a little bit, find out who is the top player doing whatever that you want to do. Right. Somehow align yourself with them because you don't have the money to pay them right now because right, you have no money. I like, I like Gary Vaynerchuk says, tell them I have an unlimited amount of sweat for you. Oh, that's perfect. And that's how I found my business partner. He came to me and he says, I'll do whatever you need done. He did that for two years. He was a, a lawyer. I say was because he's now retired from it because we started doing a rental arbitrage business together. So I have an unlimited amount of sweat for you. How can I serve you in exchange? You earn their trust over time. There's no easy button here. You earn their trust over time, and then you leverage that relationship to raise funds. So for example, you're saying, hey, I'm working with XYZ. Um, We're doing this project. This is what I would do because I think at this time in the market in California, not not outside of California, in, in California, Northern California, it doesn't make sense to purchase anything right now. So I don't want to own anything, right? I don't want to go buy something right now. But when the market changes, then I want to buy. But I think at the top of the market, you should be doing arbitrage. So for example, imagine you have no resources, no money. You're networked with this person. You're raising money to do your rental arbitrage for your down payment, first month's rent, and your stuff. All right, it's only $9,000. That's almost a credit card, right? Then where do you go to get the property, start uh, getting people to live in it? Your mentor should pull you there. Like, for example, if you went and helped out Jay Martin and you started serving him and helping him and checking out his properties and, and really getting involved, then you would have enough 
contacts there, right? They say, hey, I'm working with Jay Martin. I want to start my own rental arbitrage business. You have a lot of credibility there. You would have no problem accessing funds and, and his network after you, you've given enough value. And you've worked on his projects, so you know what to look for in the business. Oh, got it. It's funny because it's obvious. It's so obvious, but it's not obvious <laughs> until you hear it. <laughs> right. But and it's not and it's not quick either. And, and all along, you're developing yourself. You're developing your leadership skills. You're developing your ability to be interdependent. And and that's really where a whole new level of wealth is opening when you work with other people, and you become interdependent and start adding value to other people, then this whole door swings open. Investors can do just about everything by themselves. They have a fat wallet. They don't need to talk to anybody. But if you have a skinny wallet, you're going to need to talk to people. You're going to need to know how to network. You're going to need to start adding value to people. I mean, you've worked with a lot of people before, but have you ever heard any, like, what's the downside in this strategy or any horror stories? Yeah, there's there's some downsides. The, um, one of them is you stop tracking your business. You stop... You get your eye, take your eyes off your business because especially it's, let's talk about extended stays. If you take your eyes off your business because there's not much to do every day, the end of the term sneaks up on you. So you, so you got to do that. And also if you're stacking, you know, you get one and you stack another one, you get another one, you get another one. Then another problem you're going to have, the one that I have is too much net income and, and no depreciation to shelter it what a problem to have well that's the truth <laughs> that's the truth you got to say well i i need to i need to I need lose kind of, money i i need to figure out how to shelter some of this i need to either buy something or i need to you know run it through an escort but that's really it let's talk because if it's a disaster then you 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 fall back into being a just renting the place at your cost and craig's listing off your furniture right so the main horror story that you've had is just no, is just vacancy. Vacancies. Oh, I guess one horror story that can happen to anybody in short-term rentals is um, so, someone planted a a camera in one of my clients' units, and that jacked them up. But that's way beyond their control, and it, and it's it's very very outlier rare that someone would sabotage them like that. That's a horror. Oftentimes, I'm hearing on the East Coast, there's some people are selling. And people who are doing rental arbitrage have to cancel reservations, but it's is bad on their their Airbnb um, profiles because they canceled. But there's ways of softening that because you just Venmo your guests a little bit of money and say, "Hey, I'm sorry, hey, here's fifty bucks." You know, so that's 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 bad. But besides that, you know, we talked about potential loss. This is a very low potential loss maneuver because you don't own the asset you're not gonna you're not gonna go down with it right worst case you just pay an extra month's rent pay extra months you use your clauses you know sometimes you have to pay a couple months rents to break your lease but you can always roll back to doing a a long-term furnished rental until the end of your lease or you can or you can take all your furniture out and find a tenant for a regular tenant for the place you follow what i'm saying there you can yep. take all your furniture out and 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 rent it Basically out as a yeah master leasing again. That's it, or and yeah. cover your loss and you're out. Very cool. Now this is all top of the market, you know, because we're we're somewhere near the top of our market now. That's 
the time to do this type of strategy. This is not the strategy to do at the bottom of the market. That's when you buy stuff. That's when you buy stuff. That's right. So and- save your money now. Do this strategy. Get your cash flow. Yep. Market hits. Boom. That's right. Go buy some stuff. And, and as it's sliding down, you start transitioning out. You don't take it all the way. To, you don't take this thing all the way down to the bottom. At some place in the, you transition out of doing rental arbitrage and you become a buyer when there's fear in the market. There's not a lot of fear in the market now. And, and people are becoming, there's a lot of motivated buyers right now in a buyer's market. And I'm like, guys, you guys do that. I'm just going to re- do arbitrage and, and make, well, I'll, sometimes I make even more cash flow than the people buying and getting ready to lose all their equity because the market is about to change. Awesome. So we're running out of time right now. Do you want to talk about your course? And yeah, like who, who is the ideal person that should take your course? That'd be the ideal person is someone who is a, a landlord and needs to understand that they need both. There's two toolkits. There's an investor toolkit and there's a, a banker toolkit. So a, a, an existing landlord who, who can open themselves up to that there's this, a whole other toolkit that can make them a lot of money so that they can walk away from their job should open themselves up to it. They'd be ideal for it because they have immediate benefit from it. And also someone who knows it's not, they can't afford their market because either they have the money and they know it doesn't pencil out or they just don't have the resources. They're their ideal person. If you are a super, super introvert and just will, cannot pick up the phone, this is not for you. If you have a lot of money and you're super comfortable, this is not for you. You don't have enough drive to do the networking and be interdependent and things like that. I see those people who want to dally in it to make their $6 million into a $7 million. They just don't have enough drive for it. Yeah, because this takes a lot of work. It takes work, especially at the beginning. Think of a flywheel. You got to put some effort into it at the beginning, and then you don't have to put effort into it. But people who won't spin the flywheel, they want it already spun for them. They're not a good fit. They're better off saving their money and and buying the property so they don't have to talk to anyone or anything like that. Yeah, makes sense. So how can people get in contact with you? My email address is al, A-L, at leadinglandlord.com. That's the best way. And and then you can follow me on uh, Facebook, my Leading Landlord page, and LinkedIn, Al Williamson. PE on LinkedIn. It's easy to find me. It's super easy to find me. I have a YouTube channel, Leading Landlord on YouTube. You can see um, my landlord science as I'm, I'm trying to boldly go where no landlord has gone before. So I'm doing different experiments and lots of um, expense reduction experiments because expense reductions is not sexy and people don't like to look at it, but it's probably the most profitable thing you can do. It goes right to your bottom line and it opens up the margin. And again, what's the equation for cash flow? It's income less expenses. So if you can do something about expenses, driving those down, your cash flow just soars up dollar per dollar. If you're doing five units or more, that affects your your uh, net operating income and forces your appreciation like crazy. Can they underwrite with Airbnb numbers or, I mean, extended state numbers? No, no. Yeah, they, they don't do it. I, I just refinanced. And they saw that my my unit was, now I have leases. I have leases showing them. And I have five years of leases showing them that I don't match any 
apartment complex in in there, and they still wouldn't give it to me. They felt they couldn't justify it because I was so astronomically above where anyone else was. Again, you don't want to purchase anything that doesn't cash flow as a landlord. Being a being a regular landlord should always be your backup position. But it's a great way to boost profits in the meantime. Yes, you can you can do short term rentals or cut expenses. Same thing, boost profits without risk by cutting expenses. That's right. So, do you have anything else you'd like to say before we end the show today? Oh, this was a great conversation. I'm glad I, that you didn't mind going into the details. So that makes it a lot of fun, especially you know I can nerd out on you. Exactly. Like honestly, I love the details so much, and I think everyone who listens to it loves the details too. Okay, right on then. Yeah, it's something new. <laughs> well, this was fun. Thank you very much. All right, see ya. Here are some of the key takeaways I got from speaking with Al. Short-term rental arbitrage is the best strategy to do at the high of the market. You aren't putting yourself in too much risk, and you have a good chance of breaking even after just six months. You don't even need to use your own money to pull it off. You can borrow from someone. Just follow the extended stay model by getting a property near like an extended stay America and undercut their daily rate by 20%. They already did all the research for you, so you know it's a great place. Join forums and Facebook groups. This is not an easy business and it isn't scalable. You need to build trust and that takes time to build that trust. If you had to start over or if you're brand new, just follow Al's advice. Go to meetup groups, find someone that's doing exactly what you want to do and provide value to them. Tell them you may not have the money to pay them, but you have an unlimited amount of sweat for them. Work for them and learn the business and then leverage your connections with that person and create deals for yourself in the future. Now, if you want to contact Al, you can email him at al at leadinglandlord.com. And if you're interested in taking his course, you can just find it at leadinglandlord.com. Now, some people say that's expensive, but you'll make it back in just one month from using the strategy. And would you rather make the small investment in yourself today or continue to sit at your desk for the next 20 years? And by the way, I don't get sponsored saying this, but I do believe that it's worth your time and money to take courses and educate yourself. And it's like playing a game on the phone. Yes, you can still do very well in the game by using all the free resources and spending a lot of your time. Or you can just pay a nominal fee and jump far ahead of the curve. Now, does paying for something guarantee success? No, you still have to put in the work, but at least you're better off than if you didn't. And I hope you learned a lot from the show. I know I definitely did. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.